notice that in these verses, it's John who expects Gaius to be walking in truth. Now, as we said earlier, we know virtually nothing about Gaius. He was just some guy in history who was leading in this church. But therein lies the glory of this. We don't know much about him at all. In fact, the name Gaius was the most common name in the Roman Empire at that time. So you have here a picture of your average Joe Christian, the most common name that there was. And God expected this man to be a man of truth. And these verses speak to the fact that each of us are also called to be a people of the truth. Corporately as a church, we're called to be a body of a people of the truth. And individually, God is calling us to be honest with ourselves and to be honest with him about truth and walking in truth. So I think a way that we apply these first four verses is we just simply ask the question that we see here in the text, am I walking in the truth? Is the Holy Spirit showing you anything in your life, an area where you're not walking in the truth? If he's showing you that because you have the spirit, you'll be able to discern it. And if you discern you're not walking in the truth, then the gospel message is repent and come to Jesus where it's safe in the truth. Walking in light and walking in truth. Point number two, walking in truth leads us to keep the second commandment. Look with me in verse five. It says, Beloved, it is a faithful thing that you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as though they are, who testify to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. So here you get a glimpse into the original setting of what was going on. You had Christian workers who were in the area of where Gaius was located. Um, These workers, all that we know of them, one, they were strangers to Gaius, but two, they, they were Christian workers. They left all for the sake of the name. Now, if you connect this with what was going on in 1 John and 2 John, you see in 1 John, there were all kinds of splits over doctrine. There, was, there, were, there were false teachers. These false teachers had left, right? These false teachers were deceiving people in the church. John wrote to First John. Uh, John wrote in First John to that church and to told them to discern truth from error, not to go with these people. You see in Second John, there's a caution about receiving these people into their home. So it's likely that in Third John, these guys were missionaries who were sent out to counteract the false gospel that was being propagated in this area. Not unlike how we have missionaries in, say, Utah. And in Utah, there's a false gospel going out, right? But we have missionaries in that very area spreading the truth. And John is writing, and he's saying, help these brothers. Help them. Now, you'll notice in verse 8, notice the shift of the language. All the way up until this point, John has been saying, you, you, you. But in verse 8, we see a shift to where he says, for the first time, we. 
Now, he's speaking here of the whole church. Very interesting. He says, we, we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers. So by saying we, not only is it Gaius, not only is it their congregation, but John is including himself, we. And I think that when you see this, it's, it's a picture of how we as Christians ought to be thinking. We as Christians ought to be concerned for the gospel workers, for the fellow laborers. And if we're people who are walking in truth, then walking in truth should lead us to love them and to help them. Right? That's John's point here, is that walking in truth should lead you to help them. Notice in verse 5 that they were to help them even though they were strangers. Even though they were strangers. He says, it's a faithful thing that you do, helping them. So if you notice here in the big picture, what he's doing is in these verses, John is connecting, obeying the second commandment. Right? The first commandment is loving God with everything you have. All of your heart, all of your soul, your mind, and your strength. And the second is loving your neighbor. In these verses, John is connecting loving your neighbor with faithfulness to God. Loving your neighbor and faithfulness to God are connected, and they're connected by the way that we show our faithfulness to God is what? It's by loving other people, by loving their neighbors, right? It's, I was thinking about it this week, and I thought, it, I cannot think of a single instance where it is possible to obey the first commandment and not obey the second commandment. I couldn't think of one at all. How can you love God with everything you have and not love your neighbor? Loving God is expressed, yes, by loving him, but it's expressed by also loving our neighbor. Here, John exhorts Gaius to help these struggling ministers. This text speaks to the fact that it's impossible to love God with everything you've got and yet turn a blind eye. Not only, notice in the text, these guys were strangers, brothers, even though they were strangers, they were brothers. But how can you love God if you turn a blind eye to the brothers struggling around you? Our actions toward our neighbors are either, as we see in verse 6, in a manner worthy of God, or they're not. Our actions can either be in a manner worthy of God, or our actions cannot be worthy of God. Now, in the epistle, this referred to Gaius' church financially helping these struggling preachers. That's why it says in verse 7, they accepted nothing. Um, that accepted nothing is referring to is referring to money. I mean, these guys went out. They were probably evangelized to and left everything uh, for the sake of Christ and went out following the apostolic example, right? We see this in 1 Corinthians that Paul wouldn't accept money, right? Paul said, I'm going to work harder than everyone else and fund myself so that there's no stumbling block to Gentiles receiving the gospel. These guys were probably following the exact same example. But John's writing to them and saying, these guys have left everything 
they're working for the Lord, struggling in their labors, you should help them. You should keep helping them. Notice in verse 8, he says, we ought to support people like these. So naturally, what we think, well, what does that mean? What is people like these that we ought to support? And all we know is what we see in verse 5. These guys were brothers, even though they were strangers. And then verse 7, they were people who lived for Christ, and they were enduring suffering. That is all that we know of these people. They were brothers, even though they were strangers. And they were living for Christ, and they were enduring suffering. So two applications here. This passage speaks to the fact that God cares about how we relate to faithful Christian leaders as they struggle in their labors. God cares about it. We have a letter in the canon, in the, in the New Testament, telling us this, showing us this. God cares about how people in the church relate to struggling Christian leaders. And what does he want us to do? He wants us to help them. Help them. So if you don't know how to help a struggling Christian leader, then ask them. Because I'm sure there is a huge list of things that are really practical that we could do to help. Number two, the passage speaks to the fact that God cares about how we relate to struggling Christians, the struggling Christians that are sitting right next to us. So if you're in this room, you are probably a struggling Christian, right? God cared about them relating to these ministers, but if the basic criteria here was that these guys were brothers and that they were suffering then that's it. That's what God is interested in. It's not just that he's interested in leaders being helped, but he's interested in Christians who are suffering, being helped. This is just the second commandment. Love your neighbor. And if you can love your neighbor, how much more are we called to love our own brothers and sisters? When I thought about this, I, uh, I remembered advice that was given to me um, eight or nine years ago when Jessica and I left the missions field and came back to Florida. And um, we had a friend who, a guy who's, who was much older than us, and he had been on the missions field for a while. And then he left the missions field, and he came back to New Zealand where he lived. And he said, when you guys get back there, you're going to be really lonely. And what you're going to realize is that uh, most people either don't care about what you've been through or maybe they care, but they're not really going to show it. But you're going to find that you feel really alone with no one else who can relate. And he said, here's what you do. Don't wait for fellowship to happen. Make fellowship. Just make it. Just open your home and invite people to come into it. And, you know, that, that just stuck with us. And that saved us from a lot of loneliness. It's just finding you know, just opening our home and just inviting people into it. And I think that I think that, that is a good application of these verses, that there's, there's people all around us that are struggling, and God cares about how we relate to them. And if we have homes, we can just open them up and just invite people to come in. There doesn't have to be an agenda for it. 
And if you don't have a home that you can open up to invite someone in, there's a coffee shop down the road. And if you don't drink coffee, there's a salad bar shop down the road. And if you don't eat salad, then you're probably making excuses not to do this, right? <laughs> it's just coming together to love each other. And that is a result of walking in the truth. And we see in verse 9, or point 3, is walking in the truth is forsaking evil for godliness. Notice in verse 9, he says, I have, write in some, I have written something to the church, but Diotrephus, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he's doing, talking wicked nonsense against us, and not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers, and also stops those who want to, and he puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. So in verses 9 and 10, John condemns Diotrephus. In verse 12, he commends Demetrius. And then right in the middle of that, he instructs Gaius on what to do. Don't imitate evil, but good. Now notice with Diotrephus, there is no mention of heresy. Really interesting. In a letter talking about truth, there is no mention of heresy. It is purely character that John is going after with this man. Look at this man's speech in verse 10. He spoke wicked nonsense. Look at his calloused heart in verse 10. He was discontented. His character is seen through his lack of hospitality. Now, if this man was a leader, then he was disqualified because one of the qualifications is to be hospitable. 1 Timothy 3.2, Titus 1.8. But worst of all, look at the end of verse 10. This man's character was seen through his abuse of authority. He, he scattered the sheep rather than gathering them. He used his shepherding staff as a rod. Now, notice it's not church discipline that he was doing, but rather he was punishing those who wanted to help the struggling Christian leaders. That's what this guy was doing. He was punishing Christians who were trying to help the struggling leaders, even so much as putting them out of the church. Now, John contrasts Diotrephus with Demetrius. He says Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone in the truth itself. He says, isn't that interesting? He says, the truth itself bears testimony to Demetrius. I think that speaks to the fact that when we, we do what's right, it's self-evident. You recognize when someone's doing what's right. Even if you can't think of a Bible verse to put right behind it, you can recognize when someone's doing something that's right. The truth itself bears witness to it, even when it's hard to do. I think this text also teaches us that, as Jesus said, the wheat and the tares grow together. The wheat and the tares grow together. Diotrephus and Demetrius are in just about every church there is in every nation throughout all of time, right? They grow together. But look at what John says in verse 11. Do not imitate evil, but imitate what is good. Now, in saying that, it's another way of speaking about true and false Christians. 
True and false Christians are discerned not by their words, but by their actions. Right? It's not just by our words, but it's by our actions. Now, in this context, they were discerned by their attitudes towards faithful ministers. This guy was against the faithful ministers. I think these verses call us to express the love of Christ towards our leaders and towards one another really simply just by helping people when they need it. I think it's actually just that simple. If you know that your leaders are faithful and they're struggling, do something to help them. If you know your Christian brother or sister is struggling, do something to help them. This is expressing the love of Christ. Point number four, walking in truth leads us to fellowship. It says in verse 13, I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, each by name. Now, this text speaks simply to the fact that we, we need fellowship. And it's a theme that, that it seems like the Lord has just been highlighting recently in this church. There's been a lot of messages on fellowship. Um, just a few weeks ago, when we started Philippians, um, that, was, that was in the beginning, right, when Brian talked about koinonia. And the church in Philippi partnering with Paul, the church partnering with Paul was them entering into fellowship with Paul. Really interesting. So I'm going to read verses 4 and 5 of, first Philippian, of uh, Philippians. Paul wrote, Making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day till now. That's the word for fellowship in the Greek, that word partnership. Paul says, Making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day till now. Now think about this. The fellowship that the Philippians had was that they partnered with a struggling Christian leader. That leader was Paul. That was the fellowship. They partnered with a struggling Christian leader. And it speaks to the fact that suffering all alone is God's plan for no Christian. No Christian at all. Not for any leader and not for anyone who's a member of the church. Suffering alone is not part of God's plan at all. And this text speaks to that. Some of these things that seem so insignificant and maybe even irrelevant as you're reading point to just glorious truths that we can pick up on. The way that early Christians lived. In our, our society, sometimes it's just, it's so contradictory. We are isolated and we are alone and we have our technology and we have our entertainment and it can just keep us from fellowship and it can keep us from recognizing people suffering and it can keep us from just doing basic things to help them. But this text is speaking to that because God is building his church through us together partnering in the gospel. 
it's not insignificant as we close that John ends this letter saying the friends greet you. Doesn't, doesn't that seem like an insignificant phrase just at the end of the letter? Well, that's just how they close the letters out. The friends greet you. But here in the close of this letter, we, we have inspired words that speak to the fact that the best Christian leaders had friends. They developed friendships. They developed relationships. They developed meaningful fellowship with one another. They had a close circle of friends because they were losing everything for Christ. And the fact that they were suffering made it easy for these guys to reach out to other Christian leaders in the area who were struggling because they were brothers even though they were strangers. Right? The fellowship is in the fact that we all share in Christ. If we all are eating of the body, drinking of the blood together, sharing in the same spirit, we all drank of one spirit, then that is the basis for how we relate to each other. It's not hobbies. It's not anything else that the world esteems. It's the fact that Christ, with his own blood, has ransomed us from our sin, from the devil, from the world, from the consequences of all these things, and he has purchased us and cleansed us. And if we walk in the light and confess our sins, he continues to cleanse us, and he is bringing us together so that we fellowship, which is partnering for the sake of the gospel with any other Christian, especially those who are suffering. And I think Third John is a call to us to respond to that. Let's pray. Father, you, you speak to us Lord, and Father, we know that when we hear your voice, we are to respond. We know how to love because you, as Trinity, love. We know how to fellowship because you, as the triune God, have always been in holy, intimate fellowship. Lord, you call us to image you. You have made man in your image. You have remade the Christian in the image of Christ, the new man, the second Adam. And Father, we pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would help us in 2018, Fisherville, Kentucky, as we reflect on this 2,000-year-old letter from the Apostle John, would you help us obey? Lord, your word says that you have no greater joy than your children walking in truth. May we be a people, Lord, as a church, who together walk in truth for the sake of the gospel. And as individuals, may we be faithful in walking in the truth 
for the sake of the gospel. Lord, you have made a way. Without your blood. Without your forgiveness. Without the empowering of your spirit. Who is sufficient for these things? But Lord, you are our sufficiency. You don't call us to do hard things just for the sake of doing hard things. But Lord, you know the way of life. And you have given us eternal life. And eternal life is knowing God the Father and Jesus Christ the Son through the Holy Spirit. And Lord, I pray that these things would be true of us. So we pray for your grace. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.